Would you join me in prayer? Holy Spirit, your people call out for understanding. Bring to our yearning hearts and minds the truth of your word. Amen. So we've come to a turning point in the Gospel of Mark and our journey through the Gospel. Up to now, the pace has been like someone on steroids. But Mark slows it down now. This is the midpoint in the Gospel, and that means it's time for your midterm exam. After everything, uh, after this, everything points to Jerusalem and the cross that waits for Jesus there. Jesus knows he risked his life by going to Jerusalem, and he tries to get the disciples to understand what his messiahship is really about. He also makes explicit the risk they take when they follow him. And it's a risk that we still take when we become his followers. So the question for all of us is will we take the risk and let the Christ light shine in our lives, knowing what the cost might be? Mark 8, 27 through 30. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they answered him, John the Baptist, and others Elijah, and still others one of the prophets. He asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Messiah. And he sternly ordered them not to tell anyone about him. So just like a love-struck man proposing, uh, planning the perfect proposal to his beloved, Jesus has very carefully planned for the disciples' midterm, including where they are taking the test. Jesus and the disciples have arrived at the area of Caesarea Philippi, which is mostly Gentile ter territory, and the place is named for two kings, first Caesar and then Herod Philip. This is the same one who was married to Herodias before his brother Herod married her. So it's a Roman emperor and a puppet Jewish king. Quite a contrast to Jesus. Caesarea Philippi is also the center for pagan worship and has been for a very, very long time. I went there as part of one of my Holy Land tours, and when I visited it, archaeologists had only recently discovered the ruins of a city that dated back all the way to the time of Abraham and Sarah. In fact, I could imagine Abraham and Sarah walking through the gate that they were excavating. And it has always been a holy place. Take a look at this first picture. I took this picture there, and you see all the niches in the cliffside? That's where the god Pan would have been, idols of the god Pan. And this is the place, oops, not that one, that one, where according to popular belief, the, it is the entrance to Hades, to the underworld of the dead. This is where Jesus chose to give his midterm exam a place named for two earthly kings and known for its connection to pagan worship. And as I meditated on this, two thoughts occurred to me. First, it's a safe place. 
not likely to find a bunch of Pharisees hanging around in Caesarea Philippi eavesdropping on their conversation. And that becomes important when you remember Peter's response. Jesus is giving them space to answer from their hearts, not worrying about the fear they might encounter. But second, it's also a dangerous place. They are in the presence of the powers that will ultimately threaten and kill Jesus and then persecute the church after his resurrection. Well, Jesus starts with a softball question. Who do people think that I am? What's the scuttlebutt? You know, every baseball offseason, I listen to what is called the hot stove news. Speculations about which team is going to sign the big free agents out there, what trades are likely to happen at the winter meetings of the general managers. Now, most of the time, they're wrong. Well, the disciples report that some people are saying that Jesus is John the Baptist, risen from the dead, or maybe he's Elijah, whose appearance is supposed to signal the imminent appearance of the Messiah. And then Jesus asked them the real question of the exam. Who do you say that I am? That's the crux of the matter, isn't it? The Greek word for here, for, here used for you, is plural. He's not asking Peter. He's asking all of the disciples, who do you say that I am? And when Peter replies, you understand that he's speaking for everyone, not just for himself. You are the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. This is an important moment. Mark wants you to know it's an important moment. He has not used the word Messiah or Christ since the first verse of the first chapter of his gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Always he's been teacher or rabbi, but never Christ. It's hard to overestimate Peter's use of this world, word. It establishes Jesus' identity for the disciples and for us. Until now, people have seen the amazing works he performed, the healings, calming the seas, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people with two loaves and five fish. And they've marveled at his authority and his teaching. They have asked, who can this be? And now, Peter and the disciples name him. They name him Messiah with all that that means for the Jewish people. And I imagine that the human part of Jesus is relieved. Yes, he says, yes, they understood, they got it. And I also imagine that the divine part of him is going, not so fast. Unlike Matthew or Luke, Mark doesn't record any response from Jesus to Peter's declaration except to warn all of the disciples sternly not to tell anyone what they've said. And that makes sense. That would definitely be an existential threat to the powers that be. They would move against Jesus and his disciples before his hour had come. You know, others had claimed in these guys' lifetimes to be the Messiah, and all of them had met a very sad end. Now, you know how some question, uh, exams come with a bonus question? Well, Jesus includes a bonus question on this midterm. 
But this time, Peter doesn't ace it. Mark 8, 31 through 33. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and all the scribes, and be killed, and after three days rise again. He said all this quite openly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and looking at his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are setting your mind not on divine things, but on human things. Whoa, 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 wait a minute, Jesus. What are you talking about? Peter, who is still basking in the success of his answer, I got it right. <laughs> to the who I am question, has the audacity to pull Jesus aside and rebuke him. I mean, if you, have, if you believe this man is Messiah, if you've just told him you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God, where do you get the chutzpah to pull him off and tell him no, 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 shake your finger in his face? Well, Jesus doesn't keep his rebuke private. He turns to all the disciples and says, get, me behind, get thee behind me, Satan. He speaks like he was casting out a demon. And then he says something very important, something we should keep in mind as Jesus heads to Jerusalem. Peter has his mind on human things, not on divine. You know, there are definite Jewish expectations about who a Messiah will be and what a Messiah will accomplish. He will be from the line of David, David and he will restore the Davidic kingdom. This understanding of the Messiah is all about human things. No more Rome, no more occupiers at all. We will be independent. We will have the land that God promised Abraham. The Messiah will restore the glory of the kingdom of David. But Jesus has a very different definition of who the Messiah is and what the Messiah will do. The Messiah is the Son of God, and he will bring the kingdom of God God to earth. He will restore not the glory of Israel, but the image of God in each of us that was lost through human sin. Our vision talks about building relationships because that is what Jesus, the Christ, does. He restores our relationship with the God who created us and loves us more than we can imagine. Mark 8, 34 through 91. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it, and those who will lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. For what will it profit them to gain the whole world and forfeit their life? Indeed, what can they give in return for their life? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of them the Son of Man will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And he said to them, Truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see that the kingdom of God has come with power. This is such an important point for Jesus that he calls the crowds to hear it too. If anyone, and that includes you and me, want to be a follower of Jesus, they have to deny themselves, take up a cross, and follow. 
Now, the cross has lost its horror for you and me. It's become a symbol of hope and life, not pain and death. But that is not true for the crowd around Jesus. They could only see the original purpose of the cross, and they saw in action, possibly every day. They saw the dying hanging from these instruments of death. They heard their moans and cries. They may even have recognized neighbors or family members who were being killed. There was no glory in the cross. You know, I've had preachers remind me that the cross was an instrument of torture and death, and and I could process it intellectually. But the horror of what Jesus is really saying didn't come home to me until recently when I read about how long it took the church to embrace the symbol of the cross. You know, we like to think that Paul, when he's establishing the churches in Ephesus and Corinth, is meeting around and handing out little crosses on necklaces to people. And and when they have their meeting in the house church, they pull out a cross and set it on the table before they have dinner. But they didn't. The church did not begin to feature the cross to embrace it until after the Roman Empire fell, four or five hundred years after Jesus. In other words, not until after the cross became an actual present means of execution. As long as there were people around who had experienced the reality of seeing people die on the cross, They shunned its imagery. It was too horrible for them. Yes, Paul preached it. He wrote about the cross, but no one wanted to see it, to glorify it. To the people listening to Jesus, his words must have been virtually incomprehensible. They didn't know about the empty tomb yet. They just saw the cross as a horrible way to die. Mark 9, 2 through 8. Six days later, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain apart by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his clothes became dazzling white, such as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, who were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, It is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Then a cloud overshadowed them, and from the cloud there came a voice. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they saw no one with them anymore, but only Jesus. Six days have passed since Peter's declaration and and Jesus' difficult teaching about what it means to be a Messiah. Now it's time for the next step in the disciples' education about who the Messiah is. So up the mountain, these three go with Jesus. Like I talked about with the kids, anytime someone goes up a mountain in the Bible, you expect something, right? And this time is no different and they're not disappointed. Suddenly, Jesus is transfigured before them. And and this is a passage we visit every year on the last Sunday before the start of Lent. The story feels as familiar as the Christmas or Easter stories. Well, God has a sense of humor, right? 
I learned several things about this familiar passage, and I bet they'll be news to you too. You've always heard that the significance of the presence of Moses and Elijah is that they represent the law and the prophets. But they're also important in Jewish theology for another reason. It is the Jewish equivalent of the second coming of Christ. Their presence proclaims the inbreaking of God into the present age. It tells the disciples that the kingdom of God is there on that mountain right then with them. Well, of course Peter is overwhelmed, terrified, and of course he wants to stay. And then Jesus' clothing is transformed, becoming whiter than is possible on earth. And yes, it's a symbol of, of that dazzling light of God shining through, of, of Jesus' purity. But this is also how John describes the robes of the martyrs in Revelation. Revelation 7-9. After this I looked, and there was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, robed in white, with palm branches in their hands. Mark is foreshadowing the sacrifice that Jesus will make, the witness he will give with his body and blood, and the triumph that will come in his resurrection. Mark is telling us who Jesus is. Perhaps the disciples don't understand, but you and I, the readers who know the end of the story, do. And then the voice of God speaks. These are almost the exact same words spoken by God when Jesus was baptized. Then the voice of God said, You are my son, the beloved. With you I am well pleased. And these words were for Jesus, spoken at the beginning of his ministry, affirming his identity. Now the voice of God says, This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. These words are for the disciples and for us. Just as Mark announces at the beginning of the gospel, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And what are we supposed to do with that information? Listen to him. Even when he is talking about being betrayed and crucified, even when he says that to save our lives we have to lose them, even when he says take up a cross and follow him, and just as suddenly as it began, it ends. Moses and Elijah are gone. Only Jesus and the three disciples remain. Which, when you think about it, is all we need. Jesus asked us the same question today. Who do you say that I am? This is the most important question any of us can answer, right? The United Methodist Church has some important decisions facing it in the coming months, and there's a lot of anxiety about it. In January, a group of leaders released the results of months of intense mediation among the various interests, and there was a strong reaction from a lot of people. But I personally felt a real sense of relief for one reason. My friend Cynthia Harvey she is currently the Bishop of the Louisiana Conference and President-elect of the Council of Bishops. And she was a part of the group that negotiated this uh, settlement called the Protocol. I went to seminary with her. 
She was the associate pastor at my sister's church. She lived a block from Lisa and Rob, and her daughter babysat the twins. In other words, I know Cynthia. It's not about what she's done as a pastor, or when she was head of UMCOR, or what she's done as a bishop. I know Cynthia. After, in 2011, after the wildfire in my community in Texas, I, well, I had tried to get help from UMCOR during that wildfire, but I couldn't get to the right people. And I saw Cynthia at annual conference after that, the next year, and at that time, she was head of UMCOR. And I let her have it with both barrels. How disappointed I was, how little help they had been. She let me finish, and then she took my hand and told me, next time call me. I will make sure you have the help you need. And I believed her because I knew Cynthia. So when she is involved in developing this plan and advocates for it, I'm ready to follow because I know who Cynthia is. Well, what about Jesus? Do you know Jesus? Are you ready to put your faith in him? because you know him, I got, I, I'll tell you, honestly, and he says it, he's going to lead you into some rough places. He doesn't hide that. Mark and the other gospel writers want us to know Jesus, not the rabbi, not the miracle worker, but Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God, the one who brings life and joy and peace, the one who turns the world on its head by saying that the only way to save your life is to lose it. E. Stanley Jones tells of a missionary who got lost in an African jungle, nothing around him but bushes and a few cleared meadows. He did eventually stumble upon a dwelling, and he asked the person living there if he could get him out. I can, the man said. All right, said the missionary. Show me the way. And the man said, walk. So they walked and hacked their way through the jungle for more than an hour. And the missionary got worried. Are you quite sure this is the way, he asked. Where is the path? And the man said, Buana, in this place there is no path. I am the path. Can you trust in Jesus to show you the way when there is no path? When he is the path? And if you do, hear again the voice of God. This is my son, the beloved. Listen to him. As my devotions this week remind us, but the point is not to believe certain things about Jesus, it's to listen to him. What is your answer to the question Jesus asked? Who do you say that he is? Amen.